Well, praise God. If you've got your Bible today, 2 Kings chapter 6 is where you should be finding your place. We're coming down toward the end of our study here in the life of Elisha. We've got today's message and, and perhaps one more. Uh, but I hope that this study has been a blessing to you. It's refreshed my heart, revived me, looking back on all that God did through this man, uh, especially during such a dark time in Israel's history. And don't we live in dark times too? And we need to be reminded that uh, God sees in the dark and that He knows our trial and He knows our problems and gives us supernatural power to make it through. Today's message, 2 Kings 6, Why sit here until we die? There are few scenes in movies more gripping than the unforgettable first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. If you've seen that movie, then you know it begins with the U.S. infantry as they are storming the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944, D-Day. And you watch as the ramps on those landing craft deploy and instantly dozens of soldiers are mowed down by German machine gun fire. And then the mortar on the beaches is exploding all around. In just a few minutes, the blood of the fallen has turned the surf red. Most men in that scene are paralyzed by fear. Many are clinging to iron obstacles known as hedgehogs. The only way to really describe that scene is pure hell on earth. And as the chaos ensues, we watch that scene as the camera zooms in on the captain played by Tom Hanks. And through the machine gun fire and the death and the chaos, he yells to another officer, Get these men off the beach. If we stay here, we die. Now there was one man who was actually there on D-Day to witness all of that carnage. His name was Sergeant Robert Slaughter. His account is actually preserved in Stephen Ambrose's classic book, D-Day. And he recalls the sound and the fury of that battle like so. He said, as we came off the craft, we landed in deep waste water. If you didn't stay down, you'd get shot. The incoming enemy fire was horrendous. Some strong men wet their pants. Others cried unashamedly. Men were dying left and right. Some were laying there acting dead. Then my colonel barked at me. He said, get these men over that wall. We've got a job to do. And that's when I said to myself, if I'm going to die, it's not going to be waiting for the end on this beach. And he said, that's how most men got off the beach that day. Now the soldiers who survived that terrible day had to keep moving. They had to find the will to get up and go, even when life and the chaos around them told them to hunker down and stay where they were. And as I thought about those men getting up and running through that hellfire of gun smoke and mortars, I couldn't help but compare those with the words of four lepers that we hear in an equally bleak and dark, hopeless situation. We read about them here in 2 Kings 7, and Four lepers make a statement. Why sit here till we die? We've got to get up and move. If we stay where we are, we're just waiting for the inevitable. 
And so like our boys who were on Utah and Omaha beaches that day, these lepers that we're going to read about here in a moment had to make that decision actually also during a time of war. Now let me set this up. The Syrians have been accosting and assaulting God's people, the Israelites who are in the northern kingdom of Samaria up in the north. And the Syrian army had broken a peace treaty with Israel. And they had laid siege to the capital city in the north called Samaria. And so God's people are under oppression. And because of this blockade that is around their city, famine and starvation have besieged the people of God. In fact, we're told at the end of 2 Kings 6 that things have gotten so bad that they have resorted to eating bird poop. They've resorted to killing their young and cannibalizing their young because they are in such bad, dire straits. In fact, 2 Kings 6, 24 and 25, look at what it says. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and they besieged it. So you can see this was a dark day. And when Israel's situation couldn't get much darker, a ray of hope dawned from the word of the prophet Elisha. But as you read this story, you quickly understand that the hero of the story isn't God's man per se, but it's four lepers whom God uses to help deliver this city from starvation. And it begins with a decision that they made, hey, if we're going to die, it's not going to be sitting here waiting for the end to come to us. Now in this message, we're going to look at these four lepers. And we're going to study and learn some principles for our lives. If we as a church are going to survive and we're going to go forward by faith, if we as God's people individually are going to grow and move on with what God wants us to do, there are some things we cannot afford to do. Number one is this. We cannot afford to stay still. We cannot afford to stay still. Now, maybe you've heard this saying before. Man can live about 40 days without food, about four days without water, about four minutes without air, and barely four seconds without hope. And in these days, hope was as scarce as a loaf of bread in Samaria. Hunger was at an all-time high. Elisha now steps forward in this crisis and he has a word of hope from God. Notice what he says, verse 1, chapter 7. And Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a siha of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two sihas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, we don't use that measurement today, but it was about the equivalent of seven quarts. So a siha was about seven quarts. And so the man of God makes this pronouncement, hey, even though the cupboards are bare, even though your stomachs are in agony, listen up. God says in just 24 hours you will be at the marketplace buying and selling and getting provision and grocery to end the hunger. Now, notice this. Elisha didn't explain how it was going to happen. He didn't give detail of how God was going to reverse the fortunes of His people. 
He just gave the promise of God. Now, how many of you have figured out by now, after walking with the Lord, that God doesn't operate on explanations. He operates on promises. He gives you a promise in the Word of God. Now He says, trust me, walk with me, listen to me, obey me, and you'll see this come to pass in your life. Promise of God, it's been said, is an island of certainty in a sea of uncertainty. When everything else is going by the wayside, when your life is falling apart, when you can't trust the word of even the meteorologist to predict the weather accurately, you can trust the promise of God. Now here's a, a lesson that I learned already from this text. Write this down, if you will. Faith is trusting in the promise of God, even when you don't see the power of God, you don't understand the plan of God, and you don't feel the presence of God. That's faith. Trusting the promise of God when you don't see the power of God, don't understand the plan of God, and don't feel the presence of God. So, Elisha is asking the people, trust in the Word of God. I love what Dr. Tony Evans, he gave this explanation of faith. He said, faith is acting like it is so, even when it ain't so, in order that it might be so, because God said so. Amen? We need to live as if it is so, because God says so. Now, notice this. There was a cynic in the royal court who heard what Elisha had to say, and he didn't like it. He threw a wet blanket on Elisha's prediction, verse 2, he said, Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, this is Elisha talking back to him, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Wow. By the way, you know anybody like that? Like this official in the king's court? They're the chair of the cold water committee. <laughs> Don't nudge the person beside you, by the way. But you, you know somebody like this. Every time a church leader or somebody tries to cast a new vision and says, God has given us a word and we need to follow it, the first thing that they want to do is stand in opposition and utter the seven deadly words of a church member. We've never done it that way before. You ever heard that? This man was a practical atheist. He denied the power of God, he denied the man of God, and he didn't believe the Word of God. He said, could God really do this? I mean, look at how our people are dying. Look at the starvation all around us, Elisha. And Elisha said, you just wait and see, brother. God's going to take care of him, by the way. Make a note of this naysayer. The Lord is going to fix his wagon, so to speak, later on. Meanwhile, let's fast forward a little bit down in the story timeline. We've got the scene going on in the court of the king. Elisha makes the pronouncement. We have the doubting Thomas there. But then outside the city, there's four lepers sitting there. Notice what the Word of God says. Verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, 
we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, huh, we shall but die. Now, they have figured out something. They've decided that waiting to die is no way to live. And notice their logic. They have a flesh-eating disease. They have leprosy. Society has isolated them, has branded them the walking dead. And they have reasoned, hey, if we do nothing, if we just sit here, we're going to starve to death. One of them has an idea. He says, let's go into the camp of the enemy and just see if they have mercy on us. If they don't and they kill us anyway, we were going to die no matter what. And so notice, these lepers had nothing to lose. And listen, church, when you've got nothing to lose, you've got everything to gain. So that's the position that they were in. Now, there may be some today who are in the precarious situation like these lepers. If you stay where you are in your current way of thinking, in your current doubt, if you stay where you are in your sin, if you stay where you are with the same kind of behavior and thinking process, nothing will ever change for the better in your life. Reminds me of the story I heard about a, about a couple of old men who were at the nursing home. They were sitting outside on the patio one day. The sun was shining down. They were there in their wheelchairs soaking up the sun like a couple of old groundhogs. One of them looked up and saw some birds circling around in the sky. And that old man leaned over and kicked the wheelchair of his friend sitting beside him. He said, Frank, you better move around a little bit. I think them buzzards are coming for us. <laughs> hey, there's some saints in the house of God that, hey, get up move around a little bit. You're looking dead. You're looking stiff. The first step of deliverance is to make the decision, I'm not going out like this today. You dig your heels in the sand and you make the decision, I'm not going out of this world addicted to drugs and alcohol. I'm not giving in to the darkness of depression. I'm not giving up on my marriage. I'm not giving up on my prodigal son or daughter. I'm not sitting here dying in my sin. I'm going to get up and do something different with my life because God is too good and God is too powerful for me to sit here and soak and sour. You have to make that decision. I'm not going to get anywhere. I'm not going to sit here with the same way of negative thinking and doubts and not believing God, and not looking forward to the things of God, I'm getting up because there's something better over there. So the good news of the gospel, listen to me, the good news of Jesus is that you can come to Him covered in the spots of leprosy, uh, the spots of sin. You can come to Him famished, broken, weak, just as you are, and you'll find <laughs> He's an amazing grace kind of God. Now there's a lot of churches, listen to me, a lot of churches who are in the same predicament as these lepers. They're just sitting around waiting to die. A lot of churches fall into this trap right here. By the way, it's been said that if all you do is sit on a pew, then you become putrefied. <laughs> know anybody that's putrefied? According to the stats, listen to this. There are one million fewer members in the Southern Baptist Convention than a decade ago. Baptisms have dropped in the SBC to the lowest point in 70 years. 
the North American Mission Board, listen to what they report, that every year an average of 900 churches close and lock their doors for the last time. All over our country, yes, even here in western North Carolina and in Asheville, friend, don't you know they would love to see this church close its doors so they could turn it into a brewery or a bar or something like that. But praise God, it's not happening today. We've made the decision. We're getting up. We're not sitting here till we die. Now, there's several reasons and lots of factors that go into church decline, why churches and Christians stop growing. But you know what one of the biggest ones is? A refusal to change. A refusal to try something different. And so the world passes the church by and many are so resistant to change they would rather die a slow and painful death than to get up and see God do something new and different. Tom Rainer, he's a man who has studied church trends for many years. He wrote an eye-opening book a few years ago called The Autopsy of a Dead Church. And I read this book. And boy, was it a slap in the face. But he talks in that book about how he studied and worked with all kinds of churches who were on the brink of closing. And he talked to them about, hey, here's what you can do to keep viable, to keep the lifeblood of your church going. And he tells a story in one of his books of how one church called him in to help. And I'm talking about this church was down to just a few dozen members. I mean, they were just a funeral or two away from closing the doors. And they asked him, said, Mr. Rayner, what can we do? How do we help the church? He says, well, number one is you need to get together and pray. You need to pray like you've never prayed before. He said, number two, you need to make sure that the pastor that you bring in that pulpit is a believer. He's preaching the Word of God. He's preaching the Gospel. And he doesn't question the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. And then he told them, he said, you need to start sharing your faith. He said, by the way, your building is dilapidated. You need to do some work around the building. You need to paint. You need to invest in your property. And he said, one thing that you can do also is put up a video screen. He said, try some different music, some praise and worship. Try something different. And one old crusty deacon took that list and said, well, all those are good ideas, buddy. He said, but if that means we have to put a screen up and we're going to read off the screen and instead of reading out of the hymnal, he said, we'll take our chances. By the way, what's the difference? What's the difference in reading in a, out of a hymnal as opposed to a screen? Tom Rainer said, because that church refused to change, refused to adapt, refused to shake off the death robes and get up and do something different, he said six months later they closed their doors and the church is no more. How sad. I'm not the smartest knife in the drawer. You probably already figured that out. I know there's a lot of risks in doing something new, but there's a greater risk in doing nothing at all. Friend, listen to me. You can't steer a parked car. And God can't work with uh, people who are so set in their ways and so stuck and dug in that they say, Oh, not on my watch. I'm not doing anything different. Listen to me. If God is going to have a miracle of deliverance, it's going to be because there is a willingness for the people of God to get up and say, we're not sitting here anymore. There's been a new day, a new motivation. God has given us a new vision to try Him out. To try Him out. Listen. 
There's enough unchurched and lost people in Candler that you could fill this church 25 times over. What's the gospel about? It's no accident that the first two words, first two letters in gospel is go. G-O. The gospel is Jesus came to us. Right? We couldn't get to Him. And so likewise, we as God's people go to the lost. We can't sit here and wait for them to come to us. We have to reach out and get them. So number one, notice this, we can't afford to stay still. We've got to keep moving, got to keep active, going forward by faith in the Lord. Then number two, I want you to see this. We cannot afford to stay silent. Cannot afford to stay silent. Notice this, verse 5. It said, So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. <laughs> For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away into the twilight and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. Notice this verse 8. And when the lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate, <laughs> praise God, and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from them. And went and hid them. Brother, you talk about hitting the honeypot. You talk about hitting the jackpot. They had found a well. So, notice this. When the lepers get to the camp of the Syrians, they find it's more deserted than the Siberian tundra. <laughs> I mean, it's a ghost town. Nobody's there. And notice how incredible God's ways are. How awesome our God is. He disbanded this entire Syrian army without firing a single shot. God don't need bullets and arrows and bombs to win a war, does He? And this is so interesting because in the last chapter we saw that God defeated the Syrians by a miracle of sight. Remember, God pronounced them blind and walked them into the city. Well, now He defeats the Syrians with a miracle of sound. Because the Bible says the Syrians thought Oh, do you hear that? The sound of chariots and horses. It's the Israelites. They must have hired these other armies to come against us. And so they tucked tail and they ran. What a stunning example of the sovereignty of God. Not only does God send this enemy into retreat, but it's the means by which He is going to deliver His people. And the lepers are the first ones there to enjoy the spoils of God's victory. Now think about this. They discover this food. They discover the supplies. And what do they do? These guys, they would have fit in well with us Baptists because they have an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It says that they found something to eat and something to drink. And what a picture of grace. Isn't that how the grace of God is in your life? These boys go from starvation to salvation. They go from famine 
to feasting, praise the Lord. I think about that old song that the primitive quartet sing. It goes like this. I'm feasting on the manna that comes from God on high. I'm drinking from a saucer that never runs dry. <laughs> Amen. That's what happens when you've found the grace of God. But notice this. In the middle of their feast, verse 9, they get a little bit of survivor's guilt. Notice what happens. And they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. You see where I'm going with this, don't you? They realize, hey, there's no way we can enjoy all of this plunder. There's more than enough here for us to feast on. And so they are compelled to go back to the city of Samaria. They said, we've got to tell the king. And so the king can get the word out and we can end this famine in the land. You see, they couldn't stay silent about the good news that they had discovered. And there's an urgency about their words, isn't it? Time is of the essence, guys. People are dying every minute by starvation. We've got to get back quick and let them know, hey, God has set a table in the wilderness. Now think about us as God's people. The same principle applies to us. We have the same responsibility. We have the life-saving message of the gospel that can save people from sin and death. And friend, how could we stay silent about the good news? How could we? Notice this. What's the best definition of evangelism? Here it is, taken right from this text. Evangelism is nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Where to find bread. Now, another reason that so many churches die and close their doors is because the great commission has actually become the great omission. And there are silent pulpits all across America that at one time used to thunder forth unapologetically the truth of the Word of God, but they've sugar-coated it, they've dumbed it down, they've watered it down so that people are no longer hearing about sin and salvation and a Savior, but they're hearing Words that tickle ears. Listen to what the BGEA reports. This is the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. They say that 90% of all Christians will never share their faith with anyone in their lifetime. That's a tragic sin. To feast on the grace of God, be changed by it, and never tell a soul. Only 21% of American evangelical Christians will invite anyone to church in a year. Only 21%. That's why we're starting Who's Your One? We're trying to defy that number, up the number of invites that we have here. 95% of all Christian believers in America, listen, have never led anyone to Christ. Never. Years ago, on July the 4th, 1854, Charlie Peace was a murderer in London who was sentenced to death. The Anglican church who presided over England at that time had a ceremony 
for hanging criminals, believe it or not. And so when Charlie Peace, this murderer, was marched up to the gallows, the priest read the words from his prayer book, and they went like this. Those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release of, that death itself can bring. When the minister read those words, the story goes that Charlie Peace stopped in his tracks, turned to the priest, and asked him, he said, Sir, do you believe what you just read? Do you believe in a heaven and a hell and a gospel and a Savior? And the priest was kind of taken back by that, and he sort of stammered around and stumbled over his words, and he says, Well, I, I, I guess I do, sir. Charlie Peace looked him back straight in the eye and said, Well, preacher, I don't. But if I did, I'd get down on my hands and knees and crawl over Great Britain, even if it was paved with broken glass, if I could rescue but one person from the hell that you had just told me about. If we really believe, do we really believe the truth of the gospel? Do some of us need to repent of being silent in our life today? We've had opportunity and we've had chance to share, say, hey, you can feast, man. There's enough grace to change your life and your whole family. And yet, Satan has scared us into silence. Oh, they'll think that you're a fool. Don't tell them. They won't believe you. They'll think you're one of those Jesus freaks. Listen to me. There's two dangers in the church. We can't stay still and we can't stay silent. We've got a choice. It's either evangelize or fossilize. How can, listen to me, how can I stay silent as a man of God when suicide rates are at an all-time high in this country? How can I as a man of God stay silent when people are overdosing every day, shooting poison into their bodies? How can I stay silent as a man of God when we have legalized the genocide of babies in our country? How can I as a man of God stay silent when families are falling apart every day in this nation? We have good news to share, don't we? Hey, friend, you don't have to live on the scraps of the world. You don't have to drink that old stuff. You don't have to live in that pit. Let me tell you about a Jesus who pulled me out of a similar situation, cleaned me off, rode me in His righteousness, and friend, I've tasted the bread of life. It'll fill you like nothing in this world can. Let me tell you, there's atonement for sin today. There's hope beyond the grave. There's freedom from the shackles of sin. There's a victory to be had. And there's a Jesus who's soon returning. Friend, I got good news to tell. And I'm not sitting around till I die. I can't be still. I can't be silent. I've got grace for the whole world to partake of. Does anybody in the house of God hear what I'm preaching today? Oh my goodness. You don't have to stay there, friend. Your life doesn't have to be the same old way. There's grace. There's so much grace, I can't carry it in a wheelbarrow. Come and get you some. Amen? Can't afford to stay still. 
and you can't afford to stay silent. And then number three, look at this. We cannot afford to stay skeptical. We can't afford to stay skeptical. Remember that old guy who poo-pooed on Elisha's prophecy? said, that, that won't happen. Look what happened. God took care of him. Verse 10. Listen to what the Bible says. So they came and called out to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but horses tied and donkeys tied, and the tents were as they were. And then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told to the king's household. Look at this. Drop down to verse 14. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent after them the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. And they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, watch this, and then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians, so that a seha of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two sayas of barley for a shekel. In other words, it was sold at rock-bottom price. According to the word of the Lord. Now verse 17. The king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. Notice this. Not only did Elisha's first part of the prophecy come true, not only did the famine end by the announcement of the lepers who had discovered the food, But the second part of that prophecy came true as well. That the king's official who doubted would see the miracle fulfilled but wouldn't be able to taste it, wouldn't be able to partake of it. And apparently what we read here in the text is in the mad rush of people trying to get out of the city to go plunder the camp, they trampled over this old boy. Here's what I'm going to say to you. There have been countless skeptics down through the years who have declared the death of God they say God is dead they say the church is dead they say that preaching is foolish they say that God's people have to take out their brain before they go to church but friend God always raises up to bury his pallbearers and you cannot afford to be skeptical because the thief of unbelief will rob you of every blessing God wants to give you Doubt, listen to me, doubt is from the devil. The devil wants to take every exclamation point of God's word and twist it and turn it into a question mark and say, do you really believe that? In this church, in your Christian life, you cannot give in. You can't afford to be skeptical. Because the moment that we say, like this official, oh, God can't do that, we just blocked a blessing of God. And I know what the naysayers say. Preacher, we can't do that. We don't have the resources. Preacher, we're just a small church. That'll never work, preacher. Friend, they'll never get saved. They'll never change. They've always been that way. They're too far from God. You ever doubted God before? Here's what I wrote down this week. God gave me this little couplet. Here's what I want you to notice. Those who pray and believe receive. 
Those who fear and doubt do without. That's just as simple as it gets. And we see that here in our text. Don't doubt the work of God. Adrian Rogers said this. Notice, unbelief is the greatest stumbling block to receiving God's blessings. Unbelief caused Eve to sin in the garden when she failed to believe the word of God. Unbelief presented the, prevented the Israelites from entering the promised land. Unbelief tied the hands of Jesus from doing miracles when he was in his hometown. What, he said, is the great sin that sends people to hell today? He said, it's unbelief because unbelief simultaneously closes the door of heaven and props open the door of hell. Wow. Let me ask you a question. Have you put God in a box in your life? Oh God, you can't do that. That was in the Bible, and we live in a different day. You don't do those kinds of things for your people today. God, I, I can't forgive. You don't know how bad they, how bad they hurt me. God, I don't know about this person. I don't know that they'll ever change. They're just hopelessly lost. You ever put God in a box before and doubt God? You can't afford to be skeptical. Because look at what God did through the lepers. If God can use them to deliver a whole city from the brink of death, then guess what? He can use you and me. These lepers took a chance. They went into enemy territory. And we have got to take the courage of God and not be afraid to venture into the dark places, the places where God might be leading us. And God may just surprise you when you decide to trust and obey. Friend, it's a lot better than sitting around just waiting to die. All they had to do was go in. God had already won the victory. All they had to go in and do was take the spoil. It was laying down the ground for them to have. And yet, when we doubt, we miss out on the blessing of God. And I'm praying that God's going to open up the floodgates here at Liberty Baptist Church. And we'll get to feast on the work of God that He's doing in our midst. But friends, if your heart's not right with the Lord, you won't be able to enjoy the blessing of God. Don't doubt Him. It's no accident that God used the lepers. It was the unclean. It was the unwanted. It was the unworthy. They found the storehouse of grace and shared it. And that's God's plan for you and me. God uses the most unlikely people to do the most unbelievable work. M.R. Dehan, he writes for our Daily Bread devotional. He told an interesting story in one of his devotions that, that really I thought fit well with this passage. Listen to this. He said, there was once a young preacher who took over a struggling country church. One day, the preacher went to visit a farmer in the congregation. As the discouraged pastor talked about his troubles to the farmer, he said to the preacher, come with me, I want to show you something. And so the farmer showed the preacher a swarm of bees that had collected on a tree branch. And the farmer remarked, when I want to capture a swarm of bees for my own hive, 
here's what I do. So the farmer took out a piece of sweet honeycomb and set it just a few feet away from that swarm. And then he collected one bee from a clover. And he put it in a cup and he placed the cup over the honeycomb and waited for the bee to come out and discover the treasure. And when the bee ate and he was satisfied and filled, it flew directly back into the swarm. And after a moment, the bee returned with dozens of his friends. Those in turn brought many more until finally a swarm of bees had covered up that little honeycomb. And the farmer said to the preacher, Son, I don't know much about church building, but I know that when bees find honey, they'll bring their friends to the source. He said, show the people the sweetness of Christ, and in time the people will bring others to the good thing they have found. And what a lesson to us. For when you have found the goodness of the Lord, you're going to find somebody and say, hey, you've got to come with me. You've got to come be a part of this singing and this preaching that God is doing something. You don't want to miss out on this. Come and get you some of this. And friend, let me tell you, that's what God's doing here. He's doing it. One by one, a little bit at a time. I'm believing God. I've made the decision, God, I'm not sitting here pouting no more. I'm not licking my wounds. I'm getting up and I can't stay silent. I can't stay still. And Lord, I'm not doubting your promises anymore because you have got great plans for a hope and a future. And praise God, you've blessed me beyond all. That's the way I feel. You feel the same way, church? Church. 